My name is Nancy Farrow, also known as Mama Lou, and I'm the founder of Epic Experience. Epic Experience's mission is to empower adult cancer survivors and thrivers to live beyond cancer. I hope that as you listen to Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer, you find hope, healing, and empowerment. Through stories and education, we aim to guide those impacted by cancer, and more importantly, offer love and support to anyone out there who needs it. This is Beyond Cancer. we're going to be talking about living with stage four cancer and we're going to have four different um or three excuse me three survivors and hopefully they can join me now and we'll let them introduce themselves to you and then we will have a Q&A. Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to let each of you introduce yourself, um, talk about where you're from, what your camp name is, and when you attended camp. Okay, and Hazel, why don't we start with you? Okay, um, my name is Hazel, aka Hazelnut, and I live in Golden, Colorado. Um, I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in 2014 and um, went to camp June of 2014. I was diagnosed March 5th of 2014. Oh, so wow. just a few months after I was diagnosed, I decided to go to camp um, and Epic Experience changed my life to say the least. So yeah. um, definitely a, a great, great opportunity for me. Awesome. And Paige? I went to camp in just last summer. It was July of last year. It was amazing. I, I missed that from camp. Um, I actually was, I live in Colorado. I just moved to Estes Park actually from Denver. So I'm living in the mountains now. Um, and I was originally diagnosed with stage one breast cancer in 2016. And then almost two years to the date, really, um, it was, I got my stage four diagnosis where the cancer had spread to my right ilium bone. Um, and since then I've had no sign of active disease. We did radiation. Um, I've had my ovaries since removed because I have estrogen positive cancer, but no sign of active disease for quite a while now. So I'm pretty grateful for that. Awesome. And what's your camp nickname? Uh, Wildflower. Wildflower, that's right. And stud. Please tell us about yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm Lewis, uh, Lou, AKA Stud. Um, I was, uh, I lived in the San Francisco Bay area all my life. Um, and I was diagnosed in January of 2016 and went to Epic Camp in summer of 17. So a year and a half after that. And again, as these two fine ladies uh, spoke ahead of me, Epic just changed my life. So. Yeah. You kind of led right into my next one. I wanted to talk a little bit about diagnosis because we're specifically talking about stage four cancer. You've already mentioned the year I think all of you did. What happened next? So if you kind of build on that for each of you, like once you were diagnosed, what happened next in terms of your treatment? Was there surgery? Were there second opinions? Uh, kind of what happened next in terms of that? And I'm gonna let you guys just kind of jump in uh, and fight for the next spot. How's that? When I was first diagnosed, like I said, it was stage one. I was 25. I kind of had a mastectomy and then kind of went back to my life. Um, 
didn't seem like a, I mean, obviously it was a big deal, but looking oh, right. at a stage four diagnosis, um, I kind of have the two com to compare with each other. And um, I mean, after my initial, my initial diagnosis two years later, so it's still pretty fresh getting back to life. And then you get like news that it's a totally different, it's the same cancer, thankfully, I guess, but um, well, it's yeah. now, so we have to monitor that. But I think that um, I definitely got a lot of second opinions the first time around before I decided to have a single mastectomy. And then um, actually the second time when I turned metastatic, it was kind of more like life or death for me. I saw it in that way and I kind of acted in ways that were much more drastic and I might not have done um, had I not already been through it once. But I actually moved, I was living in Colorado since I was first diagnosed, I moved around a bunch and um, I was able to move back to Cleveland to go to the Cleveland Clinic and get a specialist there that specialized in young women with metastatic breast cancer and the whole deal. Um, but up to that point where I made it there, I had like seven different opinions and like all different kinds of chemo wow. that different doctors that all kinds of people that just had given me their advice and all that, which was, I was very grateful for, but it's almost harder when you have too many opinions. To right. Um, but I definitely was like really grateful that I could go back to Cleveland um, to get monitored there. I have family there. I grew up there. So um, there was that. And then I think the other big change that I made in my life was my diet. The second time I've changed to mostly plant-based avoiding like sugar. I'm mostly eating organic, avoiding processed flours. Um, and the first time around, I didn't really feel that sense of urgency on that. Um, right. The second time around, that was kind of like the big difference that I noticed was I changed my complete lifestyle in order to fight cancer. Yeah. And one, I'm going to add a follow-up question. What is your protocol now? Like, are you on seeing every three months, every, and the other, both of you can answer this as well, but kind of what's your plan now? Yeah. Um, so I was thankfully after my first set of scans following, um, I think it was about four months from when I initially had the first PET scan and found it. Um, I had radiation and pretty much that got rid of it. Thankfully yeah. after that, um, I've had my ovaries removed because I had estrogen positive cancer. So that was like a choice that I made. I didn't have to do that. And then I have to pretty much, I'm on chemotherapy. So it's a oral chemo that um, is with the estrogen. So I don't lose my hair and things like that, like most people would think, but, um, and it doesn't make me necessarily immunocompromised, but I'm going to be on that for the rest of my life until wow. pretty much, I don't know what the next option would be because I haven't asked that question yet. I don't want right. to find like it there. But basically, my body can't support this one anymore. And monthly blood work, and then scans every six months now. Hazel or Lewis, how about you? When I was diagnosed in 2014, I had absolutely no symptoms. I was 100% asymptomatic. I was running marathons. I was about as healthy as I could ever be. And um, just happened to go to the doctor for another problem, and they were doing an abdominal scan. And uh, by just the luck of the scan, just happened to catch the bottom bottom part of my left lower lobe of my lung. And I got a call and said, um, "You know, your your kidney and your bladder look great, but you have a large solid mass in your left lower lobe." And I'm thinking. I don't even understand what left lower lobe means, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a nurse. I know what that is, but I, I right. couldn't piece it together. And unfortunately, um, lung cancer comes with a really big stigma. I mean, people yeah. with lung cancer are pretty much all assumed that 
they're smokers or past smokers and I'm a never smoker. So even um, I fell into that. And the first thing I thought of was how can I have lung cancer of all the cancers out there? How can I have lung cancer? And, you know, pretty much you learn that day that anybody with lungs can get lung cancer. So you don't have to be a smoker. So, um, you know, the, the only silver lining in my diagnosis was I have a mutation, um, an ALK mutation that um, only 3%, 3 to 4% of lung cancer people have. Mm-hmm. And that was a total game changer um, that allows me to, to have targeted therapy. And targeted therapy wow. just means that this medicine that I'm on targets the mutation within my cancer cell so it doesn't affect all the other cells in my body. Um, so that, that has, I've been on targeted therapy, um, for the last six years, cause I was diagnosed in 2014. I'm on my third targeted therapy, but, um, you know, knock on wood, I'm doing great, feel great. And when I was first diagnosed, I really never wanted a second opinion because mm-hmm. I'm going to UC health and right. I just know that UC health is, is one of the great teaching hospitals in Colorado. In fact, it is a huge cancer center, world renowned, and people come to UC Health for their second opinion. And I'm going there, you know, um, because I'm lucky enough to have doctors that are working on trying to figure out how to stop lung cancer. Right. So um, I've been very fortunate with the care that I've gotten and very, very happy. And I, I feel great. I feel great. You know, side effects are there, but they're manageable. Yeah. And like Paige, will you be on this for the foreseeable future? Is that? Yeah, forever. So I go see the doctor every six weeks. Um, I see the doctor and I get scanned every three months. So I get brain MRI and chest abdominal CT every three months. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Louis? Yeah. So I've got a somewhat a similar path uh, as what Hazel went through, although I'm only four years, four and a half years in uh, versus Mm -hmm. versus, uh, her six years. Um, I also went in uh, to get checked just because I had another weird symptom. I was always very healthy, very active, worked out regularly, um, no significant health issues. And then uh, one morning I woke up with a uh, tingly uh, left arm and I thought maybe I slept funny on it. Yeah. Uh, it went went away that day. Next day, came back again, and a little more constant. And I even mentioned to my wife Deb. And by, after breakfast, went to the gym and started losing, uh, started started getting more more tingly, more swollen, more numb, and lost mm-hmm. strength in it. Ran into Kaiser, and um, they swarmed me. Uh, I guess they were thinking left arm numbness, probably uh-huh. some kind of heart attack. Right? Uh-huh. I never even thought about it. Yeah. 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 And uh, anyway, so th- what they determined from there is the reason I had numbness in that arm was because of a blood clot, upper arm lo- blood clot, mm-hmm. as well as ultimately a pulmonary embolism in my lung as well. Mm-hmm. So right. that's another blood clot in there. Yeah. And uh, we were very fortunate that we had the chief of the uh, emergency uh, department there, and he kind of scratched his head and said, well, it's great. We're going to give you, you know, Coumadin and, you know, for the blood, you know, the blood thinner. But it just doesn't make sense, you know, completely out of the blue. So they admitted me five within five days there at Kaiser, and I'm laughing away with everybody. Friends are coming over, watching Warriors games, eating pizza and everything else. Right. But that towards the end of that week, though, um, I was given the great news that I had a 
um, a cancer of the thymus gland, which is in the chest there, wow. and called and and the specific uh, disease state is is thymic carcinoma. And there are probably five different uh, levels of thymus cancers. Of course, I've got the uh, the worst one, and with a, and unfortunately, with a horrible yeah. prognosis, at least statistically. Right. Right. So it was a uh, it's a tough one. Um, yeah. And in this last four and a half years, I've uh, I've gone through two different uh, chemo infusion regimens, uh, three different. Uh, uh, Oral chemos, you know, like uh, like Hazel, I was also I took genetic testing. I also have a weird um, mutation as well called CKIT, and that has allowed me to have some targeted therapy as well. And uh, yeah, so the last one actually lasted two and a half years before wow. it finally waned off. Yeah. And I'm on a new one that I just started two months ago. And in fact, next week I take my uh, my first scan to see whether that's how well that's going to do. But uh, yeah, but I mean, my quality of life has been really fortunate. I mean, it's got some side effect issues and all that too, but energy wise, I'm still able to work out and do epic yoga and, uh, and, uh, and, and some of the, uh, you know, low impact and high impact, uh, training or so. But, um, yeah, I've been very fortunate, uh, that it ha I haven't succumbed to all the brutal side effects or the yeah. short termness of this particular, uh, rare cancer. And um, yeah, I mean, I follow along with other uh, thymic carcinoma uh, patients who are in a support group. And so I, I hear the plethora and the range of who's tolerating what, who's tried what, what different protocol. Um, and, you know, so it's, uh, it's been kind of a wild ride for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, when each of you were, were officially diagnosed as stage four, so Paige, this would have been your second time. How did the doctor explain to you what stage four is? And, or did they, did they, you know what I mean? Uh, did they use a word like terminal that, that that's what stage four is? I'm, I'm wondering, or if somebody even wants to explain the staging in case there's somebody watching who doesn't, but I'm curious specifically how they explained stage four to you when they told you, anyone. Uh, they didn't really say that it was terminal. I think they basically said that the reason that it was stage four is that in the lungs, if it's, I, my main primary tumor is on my left side. So mm -hmm. if it has jumped over to the right side, that makes it stage four, because oh. if you can have all kinds of tumors on your left side, doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. if it's jumped over to the opposite side, you then become stage four. Um, so that's kind of how they explained it. They, you know, I asked them about a prognosis and they gave me two years and, and basically said that, you know, you probably have about two years left. And, you know, of course I just said that, you know, I just celebrated six years. So, um, which is great, but I think that, um, you know, with the, the medicines out there and the research, I think that you just, it's just, you can't really give anybody a number. Prognosis is just yeah. a number. And that's what I think the takeaway is for the prognosis number is, is um, when my husband and I heard that, of course, we were absolutely devastated. And right. um, you do start making life's plans based on that. But I, I yeah. almost feel like I didn't, I wish I didn't hear that number, because I think that your mind goes in a bad place immediately. Oh, and yeah. I've been in a really good place and have had pretty good quality of life for six years. And I know 
the other shoe will drop. I know that. Um, that's just the nature of the beast um, right. with stage four. But, um, you know, I, I think that I might not have done certain things in my life, um, you know, um, based on the two-year prognosis. Interesting. Actually, for me, yeah. I, I really don't remember them ever calling it stage four or terminal. Um, but when they describe... and mini background, I have actually spent the last 25 years in the business of oncology. So I'm in and out of cancer clinics and you know, right. major health, you know, institutions all around. So I'm somewhat familiar. And plus I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, so really smart now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the fact that in the description of what of how they were explaining what went on, yes, the main mass was my thymus gland, but it had spread to my sternum, uh, my lung, uh, my liver, as well as in my brain as well. So uh, you call it stage four or stage 10, I don't care what it is, it's spread right. and extremely aggressive. Um, so I didn't need anyone to define it for me. Um, right. I did my damnedest to stay away from looking up what the prognosis was, right. you know, Dr. Google, because uh, mm -hmm. I knew it was bad. And again, in my 25 plus years in the business, I nor any of my colleagues never had even heard of this cancer. Wow. So it is, it is that rare, you know, so yeah. uh, it was a definitely challenging for sure. Yeah. Paige, yeah. anything else for you? Yeah. When they, they called me, um, it was, I, I found all the tumors that I found that all the tumors that I'd had, I found them and like went looking to figure out what it was. I've only had one benign, but this one was in my hip bone and they sent me all around. Um, so I wasn't really in the right I wasn't in the oncology unit. I was at the Kaiser with some new doctors, like thought nothing of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then when they switched me to oncology, it was just to get basic monitoring. Um, so my oncologist was not a specialist in breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer or anything like that. So mm -hmm. actually when he called me, I asked him if the news came in the night before my birthday, basically, not to call me until after the weekend. And he actually called me. It was also my bachelorette party weekend. My sister was like on a flight coming to Denver. And he called me the night before the birthday and the bachelorette party. And I could hear, we were waiting, like unsure. So we had it on speakerphone. My husband and I were listening. And he's in his car, actually. You could hear his turn signal. Um, he was driving home from work and he called me. And it was like the worst. I mean, I know a diagnosis is bad, but like, right. probably I wish I wanted to tell him that basically when he told me that I had stage four cancer um, and with that, when the cancer spreads, it was the same type, same pathology on my cancer. So it was the same as when it was in my breast, it moved to my bone, same pathology, stage four, and it metastasized, it spread to another spot. So it's stage four metastatic breast cancer. Um, he told me that I had, my husband asked the question, long-term prognosis, and he said, um, probably about three years, I'd be surprised if you were alive in 20. And so the funny thing is though with breast cancer is like there's such old data and Stud said yeah. this before, the statistical number is different than the quality, my quality of life is great. And I think that knowing that number, hearing three years, especially it's the day before my 28th birthday was right. super upsetting and terrifying. And I honestly, did lose my hope there for a couple weeks before I realized like, this is just some stat that this guy just pulled out of his pocket because he's been quoting the statistic for how long, you know, and who knows. So now I like to contribute to any research I can because there's not a lot of young people with this disease for them to have accurate 
numbers. And like Hazel said too, that that number is, I wish I had never heard that too, because I think that um, like my oncologist now says, we're going to be dealing with this kind of stuff for decades. And when I hear that, I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, that's better than three years. So right. <laughs> it's definitely right. an perspective on it. And um, that factor of hope was definitely something that the way that he presented that information to me um, was just not great. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you kind of led right into the next thing I was going to ask is, is your initial thoughts when you hear. You shared a little bit, but I want to make sure and hope, I mean, hope. Paige, you just said you lost hope because of, partly because of the way he presented it to you. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts or both Hazel and Lewis, what, what were your initial, like your, other than the stomach dropping and feeling like your head's buzzing and not, you know, not hearing anything else for a while. What was your initial reaction? I think it, for me, it was like such a confusing time. Cause like I said, it was leading into like my bachelorette weekend. So while I was out of town, my, my dad and my husband were like planning a whole new diet and a whole new lifestyle. And yeah. I think it's just like a really intense, like big thing that, um, I mean, if I gave advice to someone, I would say as hard as it could be to just kind of sit with it for a little bit. Like I said, I completely lost my hope for like almost three weeks and it definitely like my mood, like everything was, which makes sense. It's after a huge diagnosis, but well, yeah. um, that was one thing that I wish I had held on to because that wasn't his decision to take that away from me. And mm -hmm. I felt like in the way that he delivered that to me, that was the case. But I think now I'm going on two and a half years, no sign of active disease. I'm doing great. My quality of life is really good considering all the chemo and side effects that I could be having. My, it's not necessarily um, anywhere near as bad as it could be. So I'm, um, I think that the initial thoughts though are just pretty dark and it takes some time to get through that dark space to find the light. But um, that piece, little piece of hope, even if it's like the tiniest little crumb left, it's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I think that, you know, when I initially heard that, of course, with everybody else, it's just this, this awful, shocking thing. And, and literally my husband and I, I think we cried every day for a month, you know, just every day we just sat and cried for a month. And, and then it just, you just start thinking that every day that you sit down and cry, you've just wasted a day crying that you, you know, and you just got, you know, you just got given two years. So you just wasted right. that whole month, you know, there's 30 right. days down the drain. So, um, you know, when I heard that, the first thing that went through my mind, which is, you know, probably really weird is I thought, oh, my God, I'm never going to see my girls in a wedding dress. I'm never going to be a grandmother. I'm never going to see my grandkids. And and so one of the good things that came out of that when I actually picked myself up and just thought, OK, you cannot just sit here and cry all the time. Um, you know, you don't know. I mean, I. I'm six years out, but you don't know when, like I said, that other shoe is going to drop. So I did, you know what I did? I took my girls to a, a bridal store and I thought mm -hmm. I'm not going to wait, you know, cause who knows when they're going to get married, if they're going to get married. So, I mean, as a mother, at least for me, I always dreamt about seeing my girls in a wedding dress. And right. so I just made an appointment and we went and the girls got to dress up in wedding gowns that I'll never be able to afford, which was really fun. <laughs> we went out and had lunch and had ice cream and made a huge day of it. And it was, yeah. it was a bittersweet day, but it was great. And you have to just, 
do things like that, in my opinion, just not wait for things and not be sad that you're never going to do it. Well, you know what? You've got now to do things. So do things with your kids or your significant other, your friends or whatever you want to do. And if you live another 20 years, that's great. You have more time to play, you know, but if you don't, you, you know, try not to have any regrets about things like that. Cause I would have had regrets if I'd never done that. And now, you know, if they do get married and I'm around to see them in their dress. At least they know what style they like. So, you know, <laughs> when the preliminary, yeah. <laughs> so That's I'm glad great. I did that. Yeah. 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 You know, when uh when I was first told about my cancer, I knew how serious it was, but I don't think it really hit me until the evening that we came home from the hospital. And I you know my head was a bit of, it was in a fog and yeah. it's like, you know, we came in the house was somewhat dark and all. And then uh, my cell phone, you know, rang and it was one of my, uh, one of my buddies who had called, you know, was calling from a restaurant, just checking in, you know, he had been to the hospital before amongst many others as well. He just called to check in. And I just remember, you know, kindness mm-hmm. of his heart asking how I was doing. And all of a sudden it just hit, it hit me like a brick wall. And I was mm-hmm. like, choked up and tears start flowing and I, I couldn't I couldn't utter a word. I end up just kinda of hanging up on him. And I know that <laughs> I, I know that he felt horribly, you know, and he was yeah. out for dinner with other friends and all that too. But you know, and I think the next couple weeks or so, um I was just kind of swimming around not knowing what I was gonna do, uh what the future was gonna hold. Um you know it, and for me, I mean, it wasn't until I went back to church. Yeah, and I was, I was never one that went every, you know, every week kind of thing, right. you know, the CEO, Christmas and Easter only kind of thing. Right. <laughs> but, um, but I went there and went there on my own. And over the course of a couple of different weeks, a couple of different Sundays, I just found myself breaking down and crying in the middle of the services, you know, and I guess it just, it was a cleansing of sorts. But coming out of that, you know, it just it somehow kind of rediscovering my faith kind of gave me a sense of comfort and mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't that it was necessarily going to change the outcome the ultimate outcome mm-hmm. but it allowed me to kind of accept my situation my status and you know and I don't have any regrets in my life um we've done a lot over our lives and you know we travel the world and everything else and great great network of friends and family and uh I'm in a good place now but I mean just it wasn't until that point that you know things started kind of turning around for me and accepting of it it sounds like all three of you had family with you at least your significant other um when you heard is that right um how did you go about telling kids if you have them or um page your sister or other family members how did you go about telling those who were closest to you this Hmm. tough news (laughs) When I was diagnosed in March, my oldest daughter, Allie, was getting ready to graduate at Texas A&M. And I knew that she had just a couple more months to go. And she it was right before finals. My other one was my youngest one, Mia, was at CSU. Mm-hmm. And it was right before finals time. And I thought, there's just no way I'm going to tell them right before they take finals. Um, I just... I just didn't know what that would have done. I, and I wasn't going to want to be responsible for their grades plummeting or not graduating with honors or whatever the case was. 
So I actually didn't tell them. And we drove down to Texas for Allie's graduation. And I was, I started on my medicine and I was really, really, really sick. Mm -hmm. And she caught on that I was sick. And I just kept telling her that I'm just car sick all the time. You know, I'd get in the car and I'd be sick and I'm just car sick. And she didn't know any better. I mean, she yeah. had no idea that I, you know, so she believed it, but just thought, man, this car sickness is really bad, you know? <laughs> and the minute that we, you know, it took us a, a couple days to drive back from Texas after graduation. And literally the moment that we got into the house and I took her upstairs and, you know, Charlie and I told her about my diagnosis and we had our little boohoo moment. And then I told her, I have to, I said, you have to swear you won't tell Mia because Mia hasn't graduated yet. So Mia was going to graduate in another few weeks. So we had to keep the secret for another few yeah. weeks until Mia, you know, um, uh, was done with school. And then once Mia was done with school, then she came back and then told them. But, you know, you just do what you have to do because I just didn't I just didn't want to be responsible for them right. not doing well in school. Did either of your daughters feel that you... Were, were they angry because you held back or did they understand why you waited? They 100% understood yeah. why I waited. In fact, they joke about it just because <laughs> it's the Asian mom and me. It's nothing but good grades that I care about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's oh, well, it's the Asian mom. Of course you wouldn't tell it. So it's straight A's oh still, gosh. you know, <laughs> but they were, they were not angry. I was actually yeah. afraid that they were yeah. going to be angry and upset with me, but 100% they understood. Yeah. Yeah. I think the tough part for me was how to break the news to the kids. Yeah. And, you know, the kids were out of the house, you know, they're, they're adults and, you know, uh, out in their own, doing their, living their lives. And I really, really struggled with how I was going to break the news. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'll back up just a second that, you know, pretty much from the uh, get-go after I was released from the hospital, I had started a blog in CaringBridge just so we could oh, yeah. send messaging out to multiple people at the same time instead of answering every single email, every single mm -hmm. phone call. Not that we minded that. But that was also a way, a platform for me to kind of explain the situation and it helped me kind of collect my thoughts before speaking to the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, the last thing I wanted to do was tell them, I was terminal, um, but but I think it was calmer minds, calmer, calmer, things kind of calmed down in my own head there. You know, yes, I was stage four, no doubt about that. But as I think explained to the in the blog as well as to each of the kids individually on the phone, you know, while stage four is obviously very very serious and can be deadly, have an endpoint. It doesn't it is not the same word as terminal. It doesn't necessarily. 100% of the time mean you're terminal, you're going to die, at least not, at least not for, you well, know, not in the immediate few years or so right. too. So, but yeah, I mean, obviously prognoses are typically very good and all that too. So I tried to do my best uh, in speaking with the kids as well as the blog to lay out the fact that yes, I'm stage four, I'm not going to term myself as terminal, even though, you know, that's what we, you know, my right. physicians, I mean, when they write things up, it, it does say that in there. Right. Um, but then again, you know, prognoses are only numbers in my mind, at least I've convinced myself of that. You know, if, uh, you know, there's some, some percentage, small percentage that, you know, of survival rates, well, 
I mean, somebody's surviving, right? And right. why not me? And so it's kind of a pivot, uh, you know, like what Linda Walters calls it, a, uh, a shift, I guess. And I position it that way. And it, it helps me to get through. And I think, I hope it helped the kids. But as, and they've been uh, yeah. really, really tough troopers throughout all this stuff and being supportive as well, as well as all our friends stuff too. Yeah, and my sharing with family, I was with my husband when I got the call. Um, I'm a speaker phone type person, so I always have my phone on speaker phone when it's an actor or someone I'm waiting for like that, um, usually because I forget everything when it's something important. So that way someone else at least hears it. Right. Um, he was with me and then I called my dad because we had been waiting on this phone call from the doctor. So I called my dad to tell him my sister was en route to Colorado from Cleveland and she was on a layover. And my oh. dad actually decided to call her when she was all by herself in the airport. Oh, no. On another flight and told her. And I was like, oh. why would you do this? She's coming here to see me. So oh. she, I picked her up at the airport. She landed. Um, and then that was, like I had mentioned earlier, leading into my birthday slash bachelorette weekend. Right. And... I honestly didn't tell my friends until like towards the end of the weekend. I didn't want, I know it sounds kind of weird, but I didn't want to like, it was their vacation as well. And I didn't want to take away from the whole experience in terms of something super depressing and sad like that to hear. Um, so I kind of let it, kept it to myself. My sister knew, I think one of my friends that got there early knew. And then as you know, we drank a little bit more, I think on Saturday. From there though, like I kind of learned the first time around with cancer that it's too exhausting to tell every individual person. And like, I have a lot of siblings and family members that are always checking in. So I kind of like assigned a point person, like my sister, she's a nurse and she kind of was the point person if everyone had a bunch of questions. Um, and then another little tip too, I Good. open the text message from people until I'm ready to respond because I noticed that I was so overwhelmed with messaging on my phone and I was so grateful for everyone reaching out, but right. it gets very overwhelming. And that was something that either group texts that you can have spread. I did also start a blog um, to help share information there with mm -hmm. updates. But since I'd already been through it once, I kind of learned that it was very overwhelming for me to keep up with letting everyone else know what was going on when I barely knew. Along those lines, do you guys have any other tips in terms of either telling family members, friends, kids any other tips like that some things that you may have learned by doing it the hard way Paige like you said you learned the first time around things that people told you along the way things that you in hindsight realize yeah I probably should have done it this way anything like that well I think one of the uh piece of advice I got from you know from a relative who went through a serious cancer before too was don't don't get on google <laughs> just stay off the web <laughs> don't do all the research yeah. don't, don't get all the feedback from any anybody and their mother yeah. out there. Um, although, I mean, I am guilty of using it, but only in kind of scientific websites and, right. you know, cl you know, clinical trial type stuff and all that too. And trying to, trying to put some rationale to it. Yeah. But I think, uh, in terms of trying to convey the bad news to yeah. people, you know, I think, I think just trying to get your head straight as, as best you can before speaking to them um, and sharing that news. I think that some sense of calmness will help them to see hopefully some positivity and hopefully extend some hope to everybody as well. I think like Stud said, he, he uses Caring Bridge and I also started using a Caring Bridge just because it's so much easier to disseminate the news that way and people who want to follow you can follow you. It took me a while 
to do that because you sometimes feel like carrying bridges really only, you know, I thought, oh, only if your people are dying or something, oh, you know, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not yeah. for like, you know, people who are just trying to give updates that for right. um, family and friends who, who care about you. Um, but this way, they can follow you, they can read your blog. And, and um, just most of the time now, you know, they're kind of little boring little things that I post because right. thank goodness, you know, it's, you know, no. nothing big, which is great. Right. Yeah. But it's a great way to get your story out there um, without having to tell it five million times. And yeah. and your friends that care about you want to know. And, right. you know, it, uh, it's just a, it's a, just a good way to do that. So yeah. Agreed. I've never heard of Caring Bridge until right now, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a friend use it. Um, and like you, Hazel, for a while it was kind of updates, but unfortunately it did become for her because she wasn't doing well. But yeah, that's, it is a helpful way. Um, and I don't yeah. think people who haven't gone through it understand how exhausting it is. They mean well. Everybody wants to yeah. know and know what they can do, but I don't think they realize the the exhausting yeah. part. So I think that's a good way to. That's it is, and then it, yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say about a a blog like Heronbridge or I guess my lifeline as well is, in addition, to kind of giving people updates about yourself. For me, and I don't know if it's you know, at least I try to believe that it's my calling to help educate people about cancer and try and help take some of the fear out of it, because yeah. everybody, as we know, is going to be touched either directly or indirectly by cancer. Yeah. And so by following my journey and putting my own mm -hmm. <laughs> stud perspectives on things, um, hopefully uh, uh, lighten, the, lighten the mood a little bit, shown some hope and, uh, and educated people about, uh, about the journey, you know? And uh, okay. so, uh, so I'm gonna shift a little bit. I'm wondering if any of you have dealt with survivor's guilt, particularly when you consider that you are all stage four and I'm guessing that all of you may know someone who was even not stage four who has uh, passed away. So I'm wondering if there's any kind of survivor guild and if so, like how have you approached that? How have you looked at that? Anything like that? I don't think I've experienced that. Everyone, I, I belong to a Facebook group that is um, for my particular mutation. So the ALK, ALK positive, it's called, and pretty much everybody's stage four. I mean, I would say 99% is stage four. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know of anybody that has lung cancer with the mutation that I have that wasn't stage four when they were diagnosed. So I haven't really, yeah, I haven't really experienced that, um, any kind of survivor's guilt or anything like that. I feel like we're all kind of in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also on a Facebook support group for thymic carcinoma, and it's for people around the world, <laughs> even though, I mean, this is so rare, there's, we still have, I don't know, a few, two or 300 on the site um, sharing their journeys and what they've tried and what, what hasn't, has worked and what hasn't worked. And almost on a, at least a bi-weekly basis or so, you know, somebody has passed on, a father, a husband, a person that was actually on this, you know, communicating directly with us and all. And I think a support group like that is extremely helpful to have some sense of 
that there is there is a community to support you, that you're not completely alone, uh, mm -hmm. even before or after someone has passed that's close to you. And I think, you know, we and I still see husbands or spouses or kids of people that have passed come on the site and just say, keep going, unicorns. You guys are, you know, you guys are the best, you know, and, uh, you know, appreciate everything you've done for us and support and all that too. And so I don't yeah. really feel any, you know, guilt in that and survivorship in that way. I think it's just more a way of almost reverse support, I think. You know, yeah. so. I haven't really dealt with that either. Okay. Um, you've all mentioned this in, in little ways, but I'm, I want to ask point blank. How has this changed your life in terms of your perspective, in terms of your day-to-day -day activities, in terms of goals, in terms of uh, maybe a life philosophy? How has being diagnosed with stage four cancer changed your life? Well, for me, I'll just jump on in there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've always traveled um, around the world and all, but mm -hmm. Obviously, we, we've ramped things up, not knowing what the future has been like. Yeah. Um, doesn't come without an expense because now we have to plug in some extra money for travel insurance nowadays. Right. <laughs> and it has come in handy yeah. um, uh, with or without pandemic stuff, right? Interesting. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's also, you know, you don't, you don't take any, any day for granted. Um, mm. You know, enjoy every day that, that's, that's been given to you and don't sweat the little things. It's just not worth it anymore. You know, they're a whole bigger fish to fry. And, uh, you know, I think the three of us can attest to that and you too, Gail. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, just enjoying, uh, the quality of life, um, you know, that, that I've got and, um, just appreciating it and just trying to be around all the people I want to be around as well, you know, and yeah. do the things I want to do within reason. Yeah, definitely you're no longer guaranteed the tomorrows you know you always right. push things off oh i'll do that tomorrow i'll do that next week i'll do that next year there those are not guaranteed it's not guaranteed for anybody i understand that right. i mean anybody doesn't have that guarantee but especially right. when you've been diagnosed with stage four cancer so you do appreciate every day and you just go out and do things that you want to do and it's it's funny. Um, I know that Paige had said that she changed her diet and is really um, clean, and and I just kind of went the total opposite. And I just <laughs> I've got stage four. I'm just gonna eat whatever I want. <laughs> and you know, I really don't restrict myself. I I've always had a sweet tooth. I I continue to have you know to eat things, and I don't limit my red meat. I don't do anything. I mean, I am from the philosophy everything in moderation. So I I truly believe that. And I mean, there were days where I was feeling so gross and sick that truly all I could eat was cookies, and you know I ate cookies three times a day for months, you know, you, you do that's have a sweet tooth. That's the only thing that would make me feel good was to have a couple chocolate chip cookies and you know, you do what you got to do. So, yeah. um, yeah, I just kind of went total opposite and just thought, you know what, I just, I'm just going to eat whatever I want and not worry about it and everything in moderation. And I totally agree with that. I actually like to think of it more as eating mindfully and not like diets or restrictions or guilt yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Because if I want a donut, I'm usually, especially during quarantine, like I've been eating things because yeah. what else do we have to do besides eat good food? 
but I totally agree. So I try to think of it like if I eat throughout the day, like a lot of vegetables and healthy foods, and then I want to have a piece of cake or something like no problem. But it just in terms of my my cancer is fed by estrogen. And that's why I've kind of changed ways yeah. to um, I stopped eating dairy and things like that. Just and no, nothing is proven or anything like that, that it helps. But it's just something that helps me and my body feels a lot better than it used to. Um, so I'd say the diet and lifestyle is a huge one. I've switched to like clean, you know, sunscreens and hair products and things like that, that I didn't even know about all the stuff and everything that I was using before. So I've definitely educated myself in a lot of different areas that I just didn't know anything about before. And then I definitely have switched over to kind of a more spontaneous lifestyle where like when I actually got the call for camp, it was because there was a last minute cancellation for Epic and, um, I think I, it was like two weeks before and I got the email from Mama Lou and I was just like, you know what? Nothing's on my agenda that week. So I'm going to do it. And awesome. I just started kind of living that day to day where like, if something sounded good, like why not do it just because what, you know, when, when will I be able to do it again? So like right. that was a big thing with traveling. And now that that's kind of stopped um, yeah. now, I just moved to the mountains very last minute <laughs> unplanned and all of that. So um, I think the spontaneity and it just keeps life a little bit more exciting too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. How long have you each had cancer? And I know Paige, you said the first time you were diagnosed was uh, January 2016. So it's like four to four and a half years since the first time. And then um, since I turned metastatic stage four, it has been about just a little over two years. Okay. And said you said four and a half okay. years, uh, January of 16. Okay. And six years for you, Hazel. Yep. Is that right? Yep. You guys are, you're doing, uh, this is awesome. You're all awesome. <laughs> I'm wondering if there was one event and I think again, you, you, some of you kind of answered this, but is there one event, something that someone said, something that someone wrote, something you read somewhere, another survivor that kind of changed your outlook on your diagnosis. If you were kind of looking at it, one way, whether it was negatively or more fearfully or more whatever. Is there anything that was kind of a turning point for you along the way? You know, truthfully, and I said this at the beginning, um, Epic experience, it was, I was only three months out of diagnosis and I could barely say the words, I have cancer. I mean, whenever I would say that, I'd just start bawling. And I, I could never finish the, the sentence. And so I just thought, I, I just need to try and, you know, do something to get beyond that. Mm -hmm. And truly, I, you know, I was at the office at the doctor's office, and this social worker came up and said, it was one of those perks that you get when you have cancer, you get all these little, oh, get to go to camp, you, you know, right. you, you have this and this and this you can go to. So, you know, she, she had mentioned Epic Experience. So I actually went online and looked it up and, and I'm a real outdoorsy person. So I thought, you know what, this is kind of right up my alley and it's free. So that was even better. Right. And <laughs> so I went and, um, and almost pulled out right the day of because I just didn't know if I was um, going to be able to do it. And my family just kind of said, no, you need to go. You need to go. And and I went and there was a ton of crying at camp. <laughs> I think I cried every single day. 
but I think it was um, kind of a catharsis for me just to be able to um, get to the point where I was accepting my cancer and I could actually tell people I had cancer. I mean, everybody there has cancer, of course. And, oh, but just to be able to talk to people about and nothing was off, to, you know, nothing was off limits as far as, I mean, you could tell somebody that, oh my God, I had the worst diarrhea. Nobody would right. even deny <laughs> it. Be like, oh, oh my God, I've had really bad diarrhea too. You know, I mean, nothing was off limits and right. everybody, it didn't matter if you had breast cancer or lung cancer or pancreas, it doesn't matter what kind of cancer, everybody was walking the walk and mm -hmm. everybody totally understood what you were saying when you were talking about it. And it was this sense of belonging and just to that whole week, it just changed my, my perspective of myself. And, um, just, you know what, I, it just made me feel like, okay, I can, I can do this. Yeah. I've got cancer, but I can do this. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let this take me down. Yeah. And truly my family, you asked them. And when I came back, they said, wow, you've changed because I was kind of down in the dark place yeah. and thinking about death and dying all the time and just sad and, but when I came back, it was just, you, I felt happy and, and just wanted to start living again. And so that truly, truly was my turning point. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I think mine was probably, I had signed up for yoga teacher training after, before my metastatic diagnosis came in. And it was a month long intensive. And it was something that I wanted to do for a really long time, um, like years before all this, but um, I had finally like committed to it, signed up for it. And then this all happened. I wasn't sure I moved back to Cleveland. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to go to this program in Denver that I had hoped to go to. Um, and then my doctors, like everything was fine. I was able to go. So we actually, we moved like six times that year. And one of them was back <laughs> to Denver. Um, we were living out of a storage unit in our Honda CRV for a while. We had like, <laughs> but, like the majority of our belongings were in storage. Um, and we actually road tripped back, like got here the day before the training started. And it was, it kind of reminded me of like 30 days of intense therapy. Um, wow. My first day of training, I actually found a lump on my healthy breast and it was actually the implant that they put in there. But the first day of training at like 6am, I got up really early and it was almost like a reminder for me when I figured out like a week later that it was just right. the implant and everything was totally fine. Um, but like my mind went right away to all the bad things that it could be. Mm -hmm. It just was diagnosed with stage four cancer, like, of course. But um, I think like those, just those 30 days, like being able, it was the first time it was just, I was diagnosed at the end of February and this training was June. So June 1st, it started and it was just a few months after, but it was the first time that I was able to not think about my cancer all day, every day. Like I would go here and I physically, I had just gotten out of radiation. Um, I, I had done radiation, so I was just on new drugs and chemos and things like that. So my body wasn't 100% by any means, and that was probably something that would have discouraged most people from doing it. But right. a lot of the time, I would just sit there and like picture myself doing the things. And I think that throughout that week, that month-long program, I think that um, it helped me like learn my own anatomy and realize that mm -hmm. like there are tools that I can use to help my body heal, whether you know I think that it's helping or. I, you know, what people tell me isn't necessarily the case. It was kind of like throughout that process that I felt 
very supported and very comfortable there where I could cry if I need to. And um, it was just a really amazing experience that I think that after that, I kind of had a different outlook on things. Yeah. Awesome. And, and for me, I mean, it's, I don't, I can't pin it down to just one turning point. It's almost a kind of a three prong uh, approach for me. One I mentioned earlier, you know, refining, finding my faith again. Mm -hmm. So spiritually kind of helped take care of me there. And then later in that year, I think it was September of 16, I actually attended an international medical symposium on thymus cancers and thymus carcinoma particularly. So people from Japan and Italy and China were a lot of the research being done. And so I think from that standpoint, seeing all the research that's being done kind of helped, helped me from a, a academic standpoint, uh, you know, uh, think, knowing that things were actually being done, it wasn't hopeless, uh, right. really just a matter of time trying to, you know, win, uh, wait out the technology. And then, and then the third thing is, Basically, what Hazel said, it was epic. So the mm -hmm. following year, when I went there, you know, I think I didn't. I don't think I realized I needed it. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. But I, like like Hazel, there were a lot of tears that kind of repressed, repressed, repressed emotions and yeah. thoughts. I guess all of a sudden, kind of came boiling out. And mm -hmm. uh, so I think from a psychosocial psychosocial standpoint, that's where Epic sat. You know, took care of me in that way. So again, yeah. you know, spiritually academically and then psychoso psychosocially. I mean, those all kind of help me take yeah. pieces of, of me and put it back together, so. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm gonna ask you all one more question. Thank you so much for, for sharing. But I wanna see if we can help anybody who might be listening who is, is in the position that you were in when you were diagnosed. So I'm wondering if you have any advice, uh, maybe something you wish you would have known back then when you were diagnosed with stage four um, or if you had an opportunity to talk to somebody you know who's just been diagnosed is there anything you would share not necessarily a tip anything anything that that, that you that you have found has been particularly helpful that might be a, a way to help someone who's just been diagnosed well, I think with lung cancer in particular um, the statistics for lung cancer are so old that um, because the targeted therapy out there has not been around for 10 years. And so they don't have these new numbers. Um, and so it is 100% natural to want to um, go to Dr. Google. I did. And of course, that was the worst thing to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm a nurse and I still use Dr. Google. <laughs> um, it was it was awful because it was pretty yeah. doom and gloom. But I think yeah. the advice is that um, just know that those, you know, those numbers a lot of times are old. And when you if somebody were to give you a prognosis, it's just a number. Like, like Stud said, you know, there has to always be a poster child. Why can't it be you? I mean, you know, yeah. there are people that are, are dying really early in their diagnosis. And then people who are still surviving decades on, yeah. and you just can't believe it. Like, oh my gosh, why is this person still alive? Well, why, why can't you be that person? You know? Right. So take the guy, take your prognosis It is just a number. It doesn't define you. It doesn't define your life and, and just be careful with that. Yeah. Thank you. 
agree 100% with what Hazel said. Um, you know, you, you're going to go, everybody's going to go through the grief process, you know, the five steps there, and you've got to get through that. I mean, it's just healthy. And then just try to find some way to find some normalcy in your life. Mm -hmm. stay, at, stay as active as you can, um, you know, and to the best, best of your ability. And uh, don't take anything for granted. And just like I, said, I mentioned earlier, don't set the small stuff. Just live it and don't have no regrets. Yeah. And and there is hope. There is hope. I agree with all of that. Hope being super important, um, yeah. as I explained earlier. I would say, I know like from my metastatic, when I metastasized and I was waiting from the PET scan to actually meet with the oncologist, that was the time when I wanted to be Googling things. Um, so I would definitely recommend, you know, if you need to look something up, maybe something small, but I, for like three weeks, I couldn't see an oncologist from that diagnosis. And it was a really hard thing to not look that mm -hmm. stuff up, especially hearing, you know, you probably have about three years left, you know, happy 28th birthday, three years to go. But I don't believe that now, obviously, it's not mm -hmm. the truth. And the same that um, both of them have said that the statistics are just, it's just a number. It doesn't, it's not your story. It's someone else's journey. And that might be very, hopefully very different than yours. But I think that the the time in between, that's when you would want to Google everything before you have right. the chance to ask your doctor all those questions. And maybe right. a better thing to do besides that is to just jot all the questions that you have down that you come across. If your family members ask you questions, I always have a notebook and I bring it to the appointments yeah. with me. Even with my normal follow-up appointments, I'm constantly bringing my agenda and jotting yeah. it down. But instead of Googling all the questions, maybe Google something very general that you want to learn about or something that can actually be solid proof of it, not just like, right. you know, statistics, mm -hmm. but then to um, keep that hope and, you know, just do what you can to take care of your body because it's yeah. the only one we have. Definitely. Thank you all so, so much. If you have recently been diagnosed, you can reach out to Epi Experience and we can connect you with resources, whether it's something related to your specific cancer or if you're just looking for a support group. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we are not having uh, Epic camps this summer. But one thing we are doing is we're having a virtual camp. So if you might be interested in that, you can go to the Epic Experience website and apply. It's going to be a, a week-long thing for a certain period of time during the day and we'll do some of the, the fun activities. So it's not quite the same as being a camp, which is the most awesome thing ever, but it will be still a lot of fun because there'll be still some of the activities. Again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Epic Experience. Otherwise, you three, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you so much, and we hope you have all a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer. For more information about Epic Experience and our programs, or to donate, please visit our website at epicexperience.org. Music for this podcast is provided by Moonshiner Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us so we can share our story with more people. Also, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are released. We hope you come back and join us for our next episode. I'm not